This week on the show, we cover the open source midlife crisis. We also cover Donald Knuth, the Yoda of Silicon Valley, a third bot for OpenBSD's HDBD, how to upgrade FreeBSD from 11 to 12, level up your Nmap game, a NetBSD desktop tutorial, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 277, NMAP Level Up, recorded on December 19th, 2018. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. And we are uh, welcoming you to our last episode for this year, for this year, don't get scared. Uh, we have something recorded for next week, uh, so this is our last live episode here if you're watching. And so, um, yeah, this is the last live one here. And starting with the headlines, this week is Open Source Confronts Its Midlife Crisis. Ooh. Uh, yep. Yeah. So this is an article on dtrace.org on the blog section by uh, Brian Cantrell, uh, talking mostly about um, there's two different parts that have really been coming up lately. It's A, the you know lack of funding for certain bits of open source uh, and you know companies just using the open source and not giving back. And the other part is we've seen some companies that are running open source projects trying to change the licenses uh, to prevent cloud service providers from just selling their product as a service and making all the money and not contributing back. Um, so it starts out, uh, midlife is tough. The idealism of youth has faded, uh, as has inevitably some of the fitness and vigor. At the same time, the responsibilities of adulthood have grown, uh, making things more challenging while you are navigating the turbulence of teenagers and and your own parents are likely entering life's twilight, uh, needing help in new ways from their adult children. Uh, but midlife, in addition to be... Uh, in addition to the singular joys of life, you have also experienced its terrible sorrows, death, heartbreak, betrayal, etc., Taken together, the fading of youth, uh, the growth in responsibility, and the endurance of misfortune can lead to cynicism, I'm sorry, cynicism, or worse, drastic and poorly thought out choices. And, uh, you know, add in a little fear of mortality and some existential dread, and you have the stuff of which midlife crises are made. Oh, yeah. Maybe not so dark an outlook, but yeah, it could happen. Yeah, so Brian <laughs> goes on. I raise this not because of my own adventures at midlife, but uh, because it is clear to me that open source, now several decades old and fully adult, is going through its own midlife crisis. There's long been, uh, it's been in the making for years. Uh, Brian and others have been critical of service providers' parasitic relationship with open source. As cloud service providers uh, turn open source software into a service offering without giving back to the community upon which they implicitly depend. At the same time, open source has rightfully entirely unsympathetic uh, to the proprietary software models, which is burned to the ground, but also seemingly obvious as or oblivious to the larger economic waves that avoid it. Um, so it seems like only a matter of time before the companies uh, built around open source software would have to confront their own crisis of confidence. Open source business models are really tough. Selling software as a service is one of the most natural of them. Uh, 
cloud service providers are really good at it, and their commercial appetites seem boundless. And like a new cherry red two-seater sports car next to a minivan in a suburban driveway, some open source companies are dealing with the crisis exceptionally poorly. Uh, They're trying to restrict the way that their open source software can be used. These companies want it both ways. They want the uh, advantages of open source, the community, the positivity, the energy, the adoption, and the downloads, but they also want to enjoy the fruits of proprietary software, um, you know, software lock-in and monopolistic rents. If they were entirely transparent about it, that is, if some bits of the source were just explicitly proprietary, so, you know, the open core model or whatever, that would be fine. We could accept these companies as essentially proprietary software companies, albeit with an open source lost leader version. But instead, these companies are trying to license their way out of these self-contradictory worlds, uh, continuing to claim to be entirely open source, but preventing the, uh, yeah, perverting the license under which portions of the software are available. Most gallingly, they're doing this by hijacking the open source nomenclature. Uh, you know, the idea of open source is supposed to be that that's the license, it's under a license that makes it usable to everybody. Once you start putting these restrictions in it, it's not really open source anymore. So what are we going to call it? Anyway, um, of these, the laughably named Commons Clause is the worst offender. Um, also, in it's plainly designed to be confused with the purely virtuous Creative Commons licenses, uh, but others like uh, CockroachDB's community license, uh, MongoDB's server-side public license, and Confluence community license are a little better. And in particular, it is uh, apparently needs to be said, no, community is not the opposite of open source. Uh, generally, the community version is the open source version. Uh, so having you know a version that's separate from the community version is no longer the open source version. Yep. Please stop selling uh, open source's good name by attaching it uh, to licenses that are deliberately not open source. But even if they were uh, more aptly named, like the restricted clause or the controlled use license, or perhaps uh, most honest of all, the please don't put me out of business during the next uh, reinvent keynote clause, <laughs> these licenses suffer from a serious problem. They're almost certainly asserting rights that the copyright holder does not actually have. So he has a great example here. If I sell you a book that I wrote, I can restrict your right to read it aloud for an audience or to sell it translation or to write a sequel. These restrictions are rights afforded to the copyright holder. I cannot, however, tell, that you, tell you that you can't put the book on the same bookshelf as that of my rival's book or that you can't read the book while flying a particular airline that I dislike, or that you're not allowed to read the book and also work for a company that competes with mine. Uh, lest you think that last example is absurd, that's almost verbatim the language from the Confluence community license. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm sure you got the parallel there with the flying the airline don't, don't like be meaning using Amazon AWS or something, right? A certain cloud yeah. provider that you don't like or whatever. I personally think that none of these licenses would withstand a court challenge, but I also don't think it would come to that because the vendors behind these licenses surely fear that they wouldn't survive such litigation. Uh, they will deliberately avoid inviting such a challenge. Uh, in some ways, this uh, netherworld is even worse 
as the license become a vessel for unverifiable fear of arbitrary liability. You know, the the number one advantage of the FreeBSD license is knowing that there's no ambiguity in there that could lead to getting in trouble. You know, the more complicated you make the license, the harder you make it to use the software because of the risk. Mm-hmm. Um, so then he just has a couple other uh, points I wanted to highlight out of the this to, especially to people that are deciding on a license for stuff. He says, let me put it to you this as directly as possible. Cloud service providers are emphatically not going to license your proprietary software. I mean, you knew that, right? The whole premise uh, with your proprietary license is that you are finding that there is no way to compete with the operational dominance of the cloud service providers. Did you really believe that the same dominant cloud service provider can't simply re-implement your LDAP integration or whatever other feature that is that you keep proprietary? The cloud service providers are currently reproprietarizing all of computing. They're making their own CPUs for crying out loud. Uh, re-implementing the bits of your software that need uh, that they need in the name of the service that their customers want and are willing to pay for won't really move the needle on their effort. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, Definitely yeah, um, these, food for These thought. business models that are perverting open source are not going to help either. Uh, so we need to instead find a better way to do it. Uh, yeah. Worse than all of this, spreading. and the reason why this madness needs to stop, is that these licenses, uh, or any license that are vague uh, with respect to permitted use, are corporate toxic. Any company that has been through an acquisition can speak to the peril of the due diligence license audit. Uh, the acquiring entity is almost certainly deep-pocketed and not unrelatedly risk-averse. The last thing that any company wants to deal with uh, is having the deal go sideways because of concerns over unbounded liability to some third-party knucklehead. <laughs> so companies that engage in licensed tomfoolery are doing worse than merely not solving their own problem. They're potentially poisoning the wellspring of their own community. Anyway, if you want to know more, you can go read the article. There's uh, a lot more to it than I was able to cover just here. Um, But in closing, he had, uh, In the end, open source will survive its midlife questioning, just as people in midlife get through theirs, uh, by returning to its core values and by finding rejuvenation in its communities. Indeed, we can all find solace in the fact that while life is infinite, our values in our communities survive us and that our engagement with them is most important is our most important legacy. Oh yeah. Yeah. And the legalese around that is necessary but it shouldn't be something that just to stake your claim this is my area of the internet or the, the open source space. Uh, yeah. It's definitely a good article and has some uh, good points to it. And I guess there's already discussions going on on Hacker News and other outlets. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what we and also have... Uh, plenty of other links to other uh, stuff in the article. And uh, you really should check it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have as headline this week, uh, Donald Knuth, the Yoda of Silicon Valley. So um, for people who 
have never heard of Don Knuth and have never read a book that's probably typeset in, in tech, um, then they are um, probably the first ones who should read this article. Uh, this is from the New York Times, and it begins with, For half a century, the Stanford computer scientist Donald Knuth, who bears a slight resemblance to Yoda, albeit standing six foot four and wearing glasses, has resigned as the spirit guide of the algorithmic realm. Well, a little side note. Not resigned, yeah. but... They're right. Oh, sorry. Um, the little side note from here, since Yoda was based on Albert Einstein, that's pretty close as a uh, uh, similarity here. Okay. Uh, the uh, and article- to, I guess to put it in context for people that don't know, uh, we're going to explain a little bit here, but Knuth is also the K in Auk. Right. Right. So he's he's been there since the beginning and did all the important stuff. <laughs> Okay, so he's the author of The Art of Computer Programming, a continuing four-volume opus that is his life's work. The first volume debuted in 1968, and uh, and the collected volumes are sold as a box set for about $250, so in case you haven't got anything for Christmas yet, um, were included by the American Scientist in 2013 on its list of books that shaped the last century of science alongside a special edition of the autobiography of Charles Darwin, uh, Tom Wolfe's The Right Stuff, uh, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, and the monographs by Albert Einstein, John von Neumann, and Richard Feynman. So these are all, you know, mm-hmm. famous geniuses that, yeah, in, in the high league of scientists and, uh, yeah, the living legends, basically. So uh, with more than one million copies in print, the art of computer programming is the Bible of its field. Like an actual Bible, it's long and comprehensive. No other books is uh, book is as comprehensive, they quote here, Peter Norvig, director of research at Google. And after 652 pages, volume one closes with a blurb on the back cover from Bill Gates. You should definitely send me a resume if you can read the whole thing. So that's already telling you a bit about the, the content. But it's definitely good if you're looking for an algorithm or how to implement certain things as a computer scientist or in general. Um, the volume itself opens with an excerpt from McCall's cookbook. cookbook. Um, here's your book, the one your thousands of letters have asked us to publish. It has taken us years to do, checking and rechecking countless recipes to bring you only the best, only the interesting, only the perfect. Inside the algorithms, the recipes that feed the digital age, although, as Dr. Knuth likes to point out, algorithms can also be found on Babylonian tablets from the 3,800 years ago. And he's an esteemed algorithmist. Algorithmist, yeah. <laughs> His name is attached to some of the field's most important specimens, such as the Knuth Morris Pratt string searching algorithm. There's a Wikipedia article about that, well worth reading. Um, devised in 1970, it finds all occurrences of a given word or pattern or letters in a text. For instance, when you hit Command F or Control F uh, to search for a keyword in a document. Uh, so that's a very efficient algorithm. Obviously, this New York Times person uses a Mac. He <laughs> <laughs> yeah. thinks everybody else does too. <laughs> yeah, so that's the, the command modifier. And uh, the article is nicely illustrated with pictures from now and then Don Knuth. So you can see here there's a, a picture from uh, his time at the California Institute of Technology where he received his PhD in 1963. And... Uh, so basically, they, they quote other people uh, about 
um, Knut's work and how influenced uh, they were by it. So, for example, uh, Dr. Norwick from earlier in the article uh, said that here at Google, sometimes we just throw stuff together. And uh, yeah, but other times, if you're serving billions of users, it's important to do that efficiently. A 10% improvement in efficiency can work out to billions of dollars. And in order to get that last level of efficiency, you have to understand what's going on all the way down to the very low-level algorithms. And yeah, it's definitely... Um, and so then it explains um, how he created the, the books and uh, uh, the early works on the IBM C, uh, 650 mainframe. And... Um, it's certain, it shows also, we scroll down a little bit further, the, the four tomes that are already available. But the, the last one still isn't finished. And there's a section talking about that um, he's basically still working on that since uh, age 55, if I'm not mistaken. So, because new algorithms are developed and, yeah, this is an, an unfinished work that's probably never going to be finished. Um, so he figures it would take another 25 years to finish the auto-computer programming, uh, although that time frame has been constant since about 1980, the, the article writes. And the, um, yeah, so this is definitely one of the, the geniuses and the, the person really focusing on, on algorithms and computer, um, you know, working on these things and making it super efficient. And, and along the way, he invented the uh, tech type setting system that a lot right. of people and, probably uh, use. As the chat room puts out, I was wrong. He's, it was Kernigan, that's the K in AUK, so he didn't have anything to do with AUK. But yes, he did the type setting stuff. Uh, but right. what he's yeah. probably most famous for here is his excerpt from the article um, says that Knuth is a, a notorious perfectionist. So Randall Monroe, the guy that does uh, XKCD uh, and the, wrote the Thing Explainer book. Uh, he said he first learned about Dr. Knuth from computer science people who mentioned the reward money Dr. Knuth pays to anyone who finds a mistake in any of his books. Uh, as Mr. Monroe recalls, people talked about getting one of these checks as if it was the computer science uh, version of the Nobel Prize. <laughs> and it's, yeah. I think you know. I think most of the people that got one uh, framed it rather than cashing it. <laughs> yeah, and he also has some interesting uh, work patterns. So there's a, a section about talking um, about his time at the university. So uh, he took a decade old or a decade long detour um, back in the age when computers were shared among users and ran faster at night while most humans slept. So Dr. Knuth switched day into night, shifted his schedule by 12 hours, and mapped his student appointments to Fridays from 8 p.m. to midnight. Uh, Dr. Broder, a colleague, um, or mentioned here in the article, uh, when I told my girlfriend that we can't do anything Friday night because Friday night at 10 I have a, to meet with my advisor, uh, she thought, this is something, this is so stupid, it must be true. <laughs> and so, yeah, so it's definitely a well uh, written article and a lot of backstories um, about the person uh, who dedicated his life and still is uh, about computer algorithms. Yeah, so if you're interested in that at all, uh, I'd recommend checking it out. And this week's news roundup covers Let's Encrypt, CertBot for OpenBSD's HTTPD. Uh, yes, so uh, if you haven't heard of it, Let's Encrypt is a free, automated, and open certificate authority. 
basically uh, you can programmatically prove that you own a domain and it will issue you an SSL certificate good for 90 days and you automate this process and renew it after 60 days and you will always have uh, a trusted SSL certificate but you don't have to pay money like you used to. Uh, so CertBot is an easy-to-use automated client that fetches and deploys uh, TLS certificates for your web server and it's the official or original Let's Encrypt client. Although OpenBSD has shipped with their own one built in for a while now, right? Acme something? So, yeah. But anyway. Uh, the author goes on and says, I remember how excited I felt when I first read about Let's Encrypt's uh, certificate going live back in 2015. How wonderful the goal is to uh, give people the digital certificates they need in order to make any website be able to have HTTPS for free and to create a more secure and privacy-respecting web. Uh, since then, uh, they've begun to support uh, even the Acme V2 and wildcard certificates. Uh, wildcard certificates was a big change there. Uh, well, in OpenBSD, as well as other operating systems, uh, it's easy and uh, comfortable to have the, the help for that. Uh, so they have an article here on how to use CertBot. So you can just install the CertBot package with package underscore add, um, make your web root directory, edit your http.conf and point that web root there. Uh, and then when you reload your domain, uh, it'll be good to go. Then you have CertBot run and tell it where that web root is and what your domain is. Uh, the reason you do this is it's going to create a uh, file in that web root to prove that you control that domain name. So when you make the API call out to Let's Encrypt, they'll go to the website, make sure that the file's there to prove that this request came from a person who has access to the web root. If they do, it'll issue them the certificate. And this prevents you from being able to get a certificate for Google or something like that. Mm. Just for security reasons, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, and you'll see that'll run, and that will create the uh, certificates and tell you when they'll expire. Then you just add those certificates to your uh, web server config here in the TLS block. Uh, and then reload or restart your HTTPD, and now you have uh, SSR, Let's Encrypt running. Then you just need to set up the cron tab to renew the certificate every 60 days or whatever. Uh, and you see when you run CertBot and you have it renew, it will figure out which certificates you need to renew. And you can even have it automatically restart the web server after it's renewed the certificate. Mm -hmm. And if you ever stop using a domain, you can delete it and stop renewing the certificate all the time. Yeah, that's the it. automation. Oh, very nice, yeah. So it's not too difficult, and uh, nope. the Let's Encrypt folks make it actually easy to, to use. Okay, next up. Remember last week where we uh, announced FreeBSD 12 was, uh, or has finally been released? So we cover here an article uh, by Nixcraft uh, about how to upgrade from FreeBSD 11 to 12 if you haven't done so already. So, warning. Make backups first in case there's something going wrong. If you're running on a full ZFS system, then it's easy by just creating a uh, boot environment to make sure you're 
coming back. Well, you want in case snapshots as well, because boot environments don't protect, say, your home directory and so on. Right. Yeah, but hopefully that doesn't go that way. Yeah, you snapshot <laughs> everything and then create a boot environment from that. Well, depending, like, you know, you're also probably, as part of upgrading the OS, upgrading the packages. And then that's going to, mm-hmm. say, change your uh, profile settings and stuff, right? If you... If you go to a newer version of Firefox and then try to roll back, your maybe your uh, your config files are not going to load properly and so on. Anyway, mm-hmm. snapshot everything. It, you can always delete the snapshot later. <laughs> yeah. So the article starts with a, a list of things that FreeBSD 12 provides, but we covered that last week already, so mm-hmm. we jump right into the upgrade procedure. Um, first, they um, tell you that we actually are on the proper version, so you run FreeBSD version or you name dash MRS, and that way you know that you're actually on the proper FreeBSD version. Then they uh, start with FreeBSD dash update, fetch install, to actually get the latest from that current FreeBSD 11, and then run a last package update and package upgrade, and so this is your starting point now. And then you run FreeBSD dash update, dash R 12.0, I think you can also leave out the the release part, Um, and then say upgrade. I think it's just a, a shortcut. But yeah, um, dash R 12.0 dash release, all caps release, and then upgrade. And then you can see a little uh, you know, screenshot and the system figures out where, where what's the closest update mirror, fetching all the necessary metadata. Then it's asking you, hey, these are the components that I think you have locally installed. Is this correct? Does it make sense to you? Then you have to confirm that or deny and um, then it will start fetching up the, the packages or the little bits that's required for getting to 12. Uh, next, after that has, this has finished, um, you need to run freebhd-update install. Then it tells you it will install kernel updates. And after that has finished, it will tell you now to uh, that after your kernel has been installed, you need to reboot into right. this freshly installed kernel. The and reason for this is because... Uh, the next step is installing all the tools, like the world, uh, and top is if you run top from FreeBSD 12 on FreeBSD 11.2, it's probably not going to work, uh, mm. and you don't want to end up in a situation where a bunch of your tools don't work. So you reboot yeah. once, start running the new kernel, then run FreeBSD update, install a second time, which will install all of your world, and you'll have working top and LS and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And that gives you the base system, but there's also packages that you probably have installed, if only uh, the little SL package. Um, so that you need to also upgrade as well. And that you do with package-static install-f package because the package utility itself needs to be updated to the latest version mm-hmm. for 12 now. Uh, and, and in particular, you use package-static because... The package you have from 11.2 is compiled for the version of SSL that's in 11.2. But you're now running FreeBSD 12, which is a different version, and it won't work. So You're updating the whole system. Ensures that you're running a version of package that'll work even with all the libraries missing. Use that to install the newer version of package for 12, and then your regular package tool will allow you to do the upgrade. Yeah, it will tell you at many of those packages that they need to be reinstalled because the ABI has changed, and you can see mm-hmm. the ABI uh, tag there from FreeBSD 11 x86 uh, right. 64 example, to sudo is compiled against the authentication system for FreeBSD 11, and now it's going to be 12, 
And so you'll want to update that. Otherwise, you run sudo and it'll crash. And then you'll be like, well, how do I get to root now? <laughs> yeah, and this might run for a while, fetching packages and installing them afterwards. And then after you've done that, one last time you need to run a freebsd-update install for the final bits. And then welcome right. to so 12. That last one, what the last one does is delete all the libraries you don't need anymore. For example, the old version of OpenSSL from FreeBSD 11. Uh, oh, yeah. Things like that. Out with they the kept old, it around the temporarily so that your old packages would work until you upgraded them. But you want to get rid of it because FreeBSD 12 doesn't come with that version of OpenSSL, so that version's not going to get updated. You don't want any programs still trying to use the old version that isn't getting security patches anymore. Mm. And then um, there's a couple of steps that you can use to verify that it actually works or that you're now really in 12 land. And um, there's also a question at the bottom. Do I need to upgrade FreeBSD to 12 ASAP? They say, not really. FreeBSD 11.2 continues to support. Uh, there's no need to rush that. You can wait for some time and apply updates when you're free, and they post the uh, picture of the uh, release schedule as long as the release is supported. And yeah, that's pretty much it. So two times FreeBSD update, uh, first upgrade, then two times FreeBSD update install, and well, then upgrade packages, run, upgrade, and then FreeBSD install. Run install, reboot, run install, the, upgrade yeah. packages, run install, and then probably one more reboot for good measure. But yeah. Once you've done it a couple of times, depending on how many FreeBSD boxes you have, the easier it gets. Okay, another item that we found interesting uh, is six ways to level up your Nmap game. Yeah, so if you're not aware, Nmap is the network exploration tool and the security slash port scanner. Uh, if you've never heard of it, uh, then maybe you could just run Nmap 127.0.0.1 and scan your own computer and see. And you see that it will quickly figure out that, oh, you have this list of ports open. Uh, 22, which is probably SSH, 53 for DNS, uh, 80 and 443 for your web server, uh, 631 for IPP, which is internet printing, uh, 5432, which is Postgres SQL, uh, 8080, which is often uh, web proxies, and so on. So that tells you what ports are open on your computer. Um, so he says, I used MMAP like this for years, but only recently grokked uh, the manual to actually see what else you could do with it. So one example would be to just uh, scan the local network, which, you know, depending on your settings, might just come down to what other computers are in this subnet. So hmm. if you just run NMAP on, say, 192.168.0.1 slash 24, it will scan that entire slash 24 searching all 256 different IP addresses and finding out what's out there. Uh, or you can provide the extra flags dash SN uh, that will skip the default port scan and mostly just see which of these IP addresses are actually up and respond to a ping or whatever. By default, to save time, Nmap also only scans well-known ports, the ports where it's likely to find something, certain services and so on. I think it's the 1,000 most common uh, ports. But uh, maybe you want to scan every port. Uh, so if you do dash P dash, uh, that will scan every port, all 65,000 of them. 
or you can do dash p and the name or i think it does a comma separated list of the services you actually want to scan mm-hmm. yeah uh, multiple yep the other interesting thing you can get is if you do uh dash v uh or dash s capital v uh it'll get you more information on the services like most of them will actually tell you uh the version of the program that's running on the other side. So in this case, we're scanning the network uh, and we're looking up the host names of all of them. But then we see that these two certain machines are running DNS mask version 2.79. And, you know, the bind will show up as different versions and so on. You can also use capital A and it will return even more information. So, for example, when it connects on port 443 to a web server, it will say oh this is apache 2.4.29 uh that there was no title in the site and they give you the ssl certificate that's returned by default and and so on and with that you'd be able to tell what version of a program is running there unless uh the program hides it uh nmap also has a way to fingerprint the os uh by sending a certain series of packets and seeing how the os responds it can sometimes actually tell what uh type of os is on the other side you know whether it's a bsd or a linux or windows or what yep that's uh, you can also useful. just increase the verbosity of nmap itself and have nmap explain what it's doing and you can see here it's calling uh ultra scan host probe update <laughs> Uh, but figuring out that uh, these three IP addresses aren't actually answering, so they're probably down. Then you also have uh, the NetMap uh, scripting engine, which allows you to write your own scripts. Uh, so if you write one of those, then you can say, hey, run NetMap, use this script, and examine this host. Mm-hmm. Very cool. I, I wouldn't be surprised if Control T would also work during, during an NMAP scan on the BSDs. It does. Uh, I don't know that NMAP actually outputs anything, though. You might probably just get the, the status output. Mm. Yeah. Like you get what it's waiting for or whatever uh, from, the fu- from the operating system. Whereas basically, when you run Control T, you get at least one line of output from the shell slash kernel telling you what it's currently, you know, what the current weight channel is and so on, and the uptime and load of and uh, R usage from the system. But some applications, like, say, CP, will also output, you know, here's the file I'm copying and I'm X percent done. Uh, or DD will output its three-line status thing and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know that Net, a map ac- or NMAP actually puts out more information or not. If not... We, we leave that remember. as an exercise for the... Yeah, I, I don't remember the last time I pressed Control T in that Nmap. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. It's definitely good to have Nmap in its basic form. It can already do a lot of things. Okay, that's the Nmap, and uh, oh, we have news from NetBSD Desktop. So um, here's a little um, collection of articles. Uh, part one is about manual NetBSD installation on the uh, or on GPT slash UEFI. Yes, I like their uh, GPT utility. It seems to be based on FreeBSD's um, uh, Gpart, uh, the command line interface, uh, which I mm-hmm. really like. And so having someone else have the same one is quite useful. 
yeah the the familiar interface with instead of uh, you you write G part you write GPT add or GPT just yeah yeah same create and destroys and so on although I guess GPT create assumes the type of GPT rather than G part allows you to do a bunch of different types but anyway yeah so yeah they walk through creating the partitions formatting them with I guess FFS v2 <laughs> um, mounting the file systems extracting the tar sets. Uh, setting up a bootloader, creating your slash dev nodes. I forgot that was still a thing. Um, mounting the extra pseudo file systems like uh, slash current and slash proc. Setting up an FS tab, set the root password, etc. Then they have part two, uh, getting your wireless networking working and running DCPD. Uh, part three, setting up a stateful firewall using MPF. Mm -hmm. The usual, uh, what you part need. Four, setting up the X display manager so that you have a graphical login screen. And uh, part five is auto mounting with the Berkeley AM utilities. Oh, yeah, that can also be a nice thing if you're running a desktop and don't want to, you know create an, an entry in your FS tab for every USB stick you put in. Uh, well, I think this auto-mounting is also a little bit more about uh, mounting as you use it and then unmounting when you're not using it. Mm. Oh, yeah, too. Yeah, to make it life uh, on the desktop a little bit more user-friendly. But yeah, they actually do seem to be doing CD and USB with this rather than like NFS. Yeah, NFS is just another thing you add Mm -hmm. very cool so definitely something to try out and I guess most of these things are not too NetBSD specific they can also be used on other BSDs right well the partitioning and so on is, is slightly yeah, that's specific true. Yeah. the beginning but uh, the desktop parts itself pretty much universal mm-hmm So, time for Beastie Bits this week. Uh, call for testing went out for ZFS on FreeBSD project. What's this about, Alan? You would know. Yeah. Um, so, until now, the source of FreeBSD's version of OpenZFS uh, is currently taken directly from Illumos. And then there are some if-defs stuck in there to say, you know, oh, if this is FreeBSD, do it this way. The main reason to do the if defs instead of just replacing the Illumos code is so that when we're merging it, we can see, oh, they... Illumos changed something on their side. Maybe we need to make that kind of a change on our side and so on. And it just keeps the diff less that way. Uh, so we use if defs in the places where the uh, kind of Solaris portability layer, the OpenSolaris.ko uh, kernel module you load, uh, isn't able to do, you know, easily translate the existing Illumos code to what FreeBSD would do in that place. Anyway, uh, FreeBSD has regularly pulled changes from Illumos and then tried to push back any bug fixes or new features that were developed in FreeBSD back up to Illumos. Um, in the past few years, the vast majority of new development on ZFS has taken place either in Delphix OS uh, or in the ZFS on Linux project. Uh, but earlier this year, Delphix announced that they would be moving to ZFS on Linux for their product. Um, so this shift means that there won't be there'll be little to no new development uh, over on the Illumos side. Uh, most of the 
people working on ZFS now working on it in the uh, ZFS and Linux repo. Uh, while working through the Git history of ZFS and Linux to port it over to FreeBSD, uh, Matt Macy, who was working on bringing in the uh, crypto work, the encrypted data sets, um, discovered that there are some race conditions and locking bugs and other fixes that were made in ZFS on Linux, and it wasn't realized that they were more generic to ZFS or there just wasn't time or whatever reason, they never got sent back to Illumos, and so they never got pulled into FreeBSD. Mm. Um, plus, they have lots of other little fixes and so on. Uh, like, they have an improved version of Zpool IOSTAT with, uh, that lets you do more filtering, or uh, they have a Zpool status-capital-D that prints out a bunch of stats about dedupe. Uh, you shouldn't use the dedupe, but it's... Uh, that feature is a great way to prove to people that are using dedupe why it's uh, causing their system to be slow. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so some additions that are not available on FreeBSD yeah. yet. So mm -hmm. um, The biggest thing is that because uh, ZFS on Linux started being way behind uh, Lumos and FreeBSD is because uh, they did the original port and then they just had a lot of catching up to do. Uh, but it means that as they develop features, those happened kind of as they were importing new features coming in from upstream. Mm -hmm. So uh, they have a feature that I want, which is the multi-modifier protection. It makes sure that the, a pool doesn't get imported on two machines at once when you are actually sharing the disks via a multipath shelf between two machines. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem is that when that work was originally done at Lawrence Livermore National Labs, it was imported into ZFS on Linux um, before a bunch of newer changes, like um, the work Delphix did to uh, make Zpool import better, uh, less crashy, and better able to recover from pools that are slightly damaged. Um, so the original code happened, and then the Zpool import rewrite happened, and then a bunch of fixes happened for the uh, multi-modifier uh, multi protection. So when trying to pull that code over to FreeBSD, uh, the problem I ran into was, well, this doesn't merge because all of the Zpool input code has been rewritten and that function doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and it has and the replacement has different parameters and so on. Uh, so just trying to switch over to tracking ZFS and Linux by just going through the commits one at a time and catching up doesn't really work because things were done kind of out of order there. They, they did their own local development as those features came in. So there's not really any point in history where ZF, well, there, there's some point way back in history, but in general, there's not a good place where the ZFS on Linux repo and the FreeBSD repo were at the same place that we could just walk forward from. Uh, and, you know, we don't want to undo all the things that have been done in ZFS since then. Uh, so the plan for the ZFS on FreeBSD project is basically to freshly port ZFS, uh, open ZFS from that repo to FreeBSD. Um, and importantly, as part of that work, actually, to upstream the basically the if defs and stuff that we talked about to that repo. So in the end, uh, we basically have this repo that's got the source code for ZFS and Linux in it and for ZFS on FreeBSD. And we will leverage the existing CI infrastructure that's already there uh, on their side so that every new pull request that comes in for ZFS will be tested against both. Uh, and that way, if there are problems, they'll be caught then rather than getting committed there and 
only finding out there's a problem when we get around to trying to port that to FreeBSD, which could be months and months later. Mm. Undesirable. Uh, so, yep. Yes. Uh, huge thanks go to Brian Bellendorf, uh, who's the original founder of the ZFS on Linux project, uh, for being willing to to basically work with FreeBSD and and make this uh, kind of what the OpenZFS project originally envisioned five or so years ago was having one repo that had all of the ZFS code in it, and it would be the same for everybody that way. Um, and then each project uh, or consumer would pull that in and apply their local changes. Um, the problem was no one wanted to maintain the version that wasn't the one they were going to use, right? Uh, the problem with having the the one true open ZFS repo is that it would be a not usable version, basically. It would be open ZFS that doesn't work in any operating system. Um, and while, and it was also difficult to test, uh, there were some ideas on how to do that, but it wasn't there. So with this, we basically create, uh, kind of how we have the machine dependent and machine independent code in the kernel. Yeah. Uh, you know, the code that's common, no matter if you're running arm or AMD 64 or power nine, uh, and then the machine dependent bits, we'll end up with a repo that has basically an OS slash FreeBSD directory that contains any code that's specific to FreeBSD, like the code that interacts with geom to actually make to talk to the disks in zfs and then there'll be an os uh, linux directory and that'll contain uh, all the linux specific bits but it'll eventually give us a repo that has basically all of zfs no operating system not, not the rest of an operating system and then subdirectories with each operating system's kind of integration code yeah as a reference repo to yeah. go uh, and importantly it will leverage the existing CI and code coverage work so that uh, every change that's proposed to ZFS can be tested automatically against both versions and possibly even other versions in the future uh, and make life that much easier. Okay, we'll uh, watch this and hopefully have uh, more and often uh, integrated mm -hmm. uh, ZFS features in the BSDs, not just FreeBSD. Yeah. So basically the transition plan is, I think, uh, we're still working out finer details, but uh, it's possible that we end up with basically a port that compiles a ZFS kernel module uh, so that people can load that one instead of the, the default one in FreeBSD for a while and mm -hmm. start being able to test uh, this version. And then uh, I think the goal is in the middle of April, but we'll see uh, how things go. It's hard to predict how long this will take. Um, that we would switch the version in the base system to be uh, this ZFS on FreeBSD. Okay. Yeah, so that's the, the road ahead. And it's, diff uh, it's difficult work, but I see that projects are now collaborating on this more to have a unified mm -hmm. ZFS repo. Uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, there's, as I mentioned before, for the last couple, uh, since the OpenZFS Developer Summit uh, back in September, we've had monthly calls where we've been talking about how to deal with the problem of ZFS is currently quite different in every different operating system. They don't really have feature parity uh, and how to solve this. And while we looked at, you know, trying to cherry pick individual features uh, that were missing on FreeBSD and bring them over, um, it was quite difficult because every feature is kind of intertwined in changes to other features and other parts of ZFS. Yeah. Um, and so just doing these one at a time 
because things happened all out of order is very difficult. So the idea here is to do this forklift once, get caught up, and then going forward, it'll just be like we uh, eventually managed to do with the Illumos's upstream, is just every time they make a change, we can look at it, pull it over, and it'll merge nicely. Uh, and the idea is to be able to do the same thing here uh, with the new upstream. Okay. Uh, and, you know, uh, a lot more work is going in on the kind of the OpenZFS community side of making sure that we coordinate changes better so that um, everyone knows no what's coming. One of these downstream project is kind of unilaterally making changes to the command line interface and so on. Uh, and making sure that we end up with the, the best possible result rather than just the one that gets written first or whatever. Mm. Okay. Um, other news that we have is uh, the Dragonfly BSD 5.4.1 release is uh, imminent within a week. Uh, it's a short blurb on dragonflybsddigest.com. Uh, as planned, there will be a 5.4.1 release for Dragonfly. Matthew Dillon's work on Hammer 2 will be in there, as will be a fix for keyboard attachment and updates from Aaron Lee uh, on DHCP CD support. And they will tag and build this uh, weekend, so it will be available around Christmas time. I can see why you would need to uh, do a point release to make sure people's keyboards work. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of important on Unix to have something that can do taps and pipes and uh, regular characters. So or yeah, just typing in general. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> enter. Just logging in. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and uh, we also have you can't opt out of the patent system. That's why Patent Pandas was created. So this is over at BunnyStudios which might sound funny, but it isn't. Um, um, basically, they're saying the prevailing notion uh, among open source developers is that patents are bad for open source, which means they can be safely ignored by everyone without consequence. Unfortunately, that's not the way uh, to opt out of patents. Even if the entire community has agreed to share ideas and not patent them, there is nothing uh, in practice that stops a troll from outside of the community from cherry-picking ideas and attempting to patent them. It turns out that patent examiners spend around 12 hours on average to review a patent, which is only enough time to search the uh, existing patent database for prior art. That's right. They don't check GitHub, academic journals, or even do a simple Google search for the keywords. Once a patent has been granted, even with extensive evidence of prior art, uh, it is an expensive process to challenge it. And the asymmetric cost of the patent, so $300 to file a patent and about $20,000 to fight one, uh, creates an opportunity for trolls uh, to patent spam innovative open source ideas. And even if only a fraction of the patent spam is granted, it's still profitable to shake down communities uh, uh, for multiple individuals, settlements that are each somewhat less than the cost of challenging the patent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it's so they have some ideas about how to solve this problem. Yep, and of course they have a, a nice little logo already, uh, a little further down, the panda. Mm-hmm. And yeah, uh, read a bit further about this. I think this is an interesting or worthwhile uh, endeavor. Uh, we also have announcing the Yggdrasil Network version uh, z- oh, 0.3 already. So Yggdrasil is an end-to-end encrypted IPv6 networking to connect worlds. And um, yeah, they list the, the features and how to upgrade to that version. And yeah, cool. Apparently. What else? <clears throat> 
Yeah, they presented it at the Norwegian Unix Users Group back in October. Ah, I think that's the one uh, that's involved in the uh, EuroBSDCon for next year. Mm -hmm. uh, then we have a job posting here. Uh, the company The Good Seed in Los Angeles, California is looking to hire an OpenBSD engineer as a contract position. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the link's in the show notes if you're interested in that. Yep. And we also have uh, over at It's Foz, free and open source software, the FreeBSD 12 announcement. They covered it a little bit. And um, that's pretty much what we already told you the, about the features, but it's nice to see it um, mentioned in other uh, open source media outlets. Mm -hmm. And, oh, for the SSL-minded folks, uh, LibreSSL 2.9.0 has been released. So get the updates. Uh, you will definitely find something in there that's uh, valuable. Um, they write that it's the first development release from the 2.9 series, which will eventually be part of OpenBSD 6.5 and it includes a couple of changes, a long list actually, more um, than we can read here, but um, uh, improvements all over the, the code and um, for example, the added support for the SM3 hash, uh, which mm -hmm. is a Chinese standard, uh, adds extensive interoperability tests between LibreSSL and OpenSSL, or 1.0 and 1.1, so that uh, it'll be easier to use LibreSSL in place of OpenSSL. They also list uh, improved protection against timing side channels in ECDSH signature generation. Mm. So other things like that, definitely worth having. Uh, just for the bug fixes and, yeah, features on top. Uh, the next item is a live stream test, SGI Octane light bar uh, repair slash soldering. So this yeah, is a YouTube. So if you want to <laughs> see an old SGI machine being repaired, uh, there's an interesting live stream. Okay, yeah, it could be educational just in case... Um, you're uh, into nostalgia and SGIs in particular. Mm -hmm. uh, what we also have is uh, configure a FreeBSD email server using Postfix, Dovcot, MySQL, DaviCall, and SpamAssassin. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a good project for after Christmas. We have some time on your hands, hopefully. Yeah, it's got uh, <clears throat> the packages, the rc.conf settings, etc. Very similar to the setup I use, uh, except for I didn't have uh, the iCal bits. Oh yeah, for calendar integration, and uh, mm -hmm. we can get get appointments, and they get added to your calendar if you accept them. Because <laughs> otherwise, people can just spam the calendar with appointments. Um, the other thing that we have in the items is Berkeley Smorgas. Uh, is it board or bird? I think Smorgasbord. it's. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, this is an interesting project um, where OpenBSD as, uh, of 6.3 has some pretty mature solutions for serving up the web. And they're talking about HTTPD, of course, and RelayD. And this is taking it a little bit further. And they talk about uh, how to configure those base configuration uh, for RelayD and HTTPD. And that's yeah, pretty comprehensive. And mm -hmm. you can directly copy the source from there. It, it's, it's all in there. It's a tutorial, basically. Then we have the 
I guess it is a schedule now. The schedule for the BSD Dev Room at Fosdem. Oh yes, on Saturday. So if, uh, you know, if you're from Europe, uh, you've probably heard of the Free and Open Source Developers European Meeting. It happens uh, every late January or early February uh, at the Free University in Belgium. Uh, and so we have the schedule for Saturday. Uh, so um, Fosdem is a huge event. Uh, many thousands of people uh and they have like 250 tracks or something like that. i think in total they said they got over a thousand papers submitted oh. um <clears throat> and so anyway on saturday there's an entire room dedicated to just bsd um there are also entire rooms dedicated to postgres php uh vlc kde uh mozilla every programming language you've ever heard of every <laughs> topic about you know free Embedded. society you've ever heard of everything yeah yeah so all aspects. Um, the bsd dev room will first have a 25 years of freebsd talk by deb goodkin for half an hour uh and then how to build a freebsd ci cd environment um by luca pizamiglio uh, and christoph provost will prevent automated uh firewall testing uh jeremy bennett will share uh bring up and testing embedded freebsd on a five core risk five processor using llvm uh benny siegert will talk about uh updates on netbsd and package source uh thomas barabosch will uh present his k-leak paper if you remember that from uh, we talked a bit about that last week so that one will be interesting to see uh nicholas sizing uh will talk about an update on freebsd graphics uh Goran Mekic will talk about using FreeBSD in an audio studio and why FreeBSD actually has a lot to offer for music production. Uh, Benedict Reischeling, whoever that is, uh, <laughs> will talk about uh, migrating a big data cluster from Linux to FreeBSD. Yeah, that's uh, the talk I always wanted to give, and uh, this is going to happen. Yeah. Uh, Vincent Delft uh, will talk about OpenBSD as a full-featured NAS uh, with uh, DLNA integration and all that. Uh, Next up. I will be presenting ZFS-powered <laughs> magic updates uh, using boot environments for atomic in-place upgrades. I like the magic uh, part in that. <laughs> yeah. uh, Thomas Monroe uh, from Postgres will be talking about walking through walls, specifically uh, making changes in both Postgres and FreeBSD to make the two work better together, uh, which he's been working on. So I'm... Um, uh, I'm his one of his mentors, so I'm glad to see him coming out and presenting at FreeBSD. Excellent. And uh, Valesovod Stokov will be talking about uh, RSpamD and integrating it into the FreeBSD.org mail infrastructure to try to deal with our spam problem. Oh, <coughs> excellent. Indeed. Yeah, so nice lineup of talks, very different topics, and um, uh, yeah. I've heard rumors that there will be BSD-flavored talks in some other... Um, in the main track of FOSDEM as well. So there's actually main conference tracks. I think there's like six or eight or something like that. In addition to, uh, as you can see here, uh, all these developer rooms. So there's one about ADA. There's one about blockchains and cryptocurrencies. There's the BSD one, which will be in K3401. Uh, there's one about CAD and open hardware. One about uh, collaborative information and content management applications. One about just communities and themselves, uh, containers, decentralized internet and privacy, uh, distributions for OSs, 
one for DNS, uh, Java, software radio, tools and editors, geospatial, Go, graphics, graph processing, hardware, uh, HPC and big data, uh, infrastructure management, JavaScript, legal and policy issues, LLVM, microkernels, you know, a machine learning, minimalist languages, monitoring and observability, Mozilla, uh, MySQL, MariaDB and friends, .NET and TypeScript, uh, open document editors, open media, open source design, uh, PHP, Postgres, Python, quantum computing, real-time communications, retro computing, RISC-V, uh, Rust, software-defined networking, software-defined storage, search, security, uh, tools for docs, uh, and virtualization and infrastructure as a service. Oh, and those are just something. the community rooms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's something in there for everyone. And the FreeBSD Foundation will have a FreeBSD table again. So if you want to say hi to us, we'll probably run around a couple of times giving our talks. But on the other times, you'll uh, have a good chance of finding us at the FreeBSD table, talking to you. Yeah. That's why we're there. So, yes, I think it says uh, there'll be uh, 346 different speakers uh, in 54 different tracks. That's a lot. It's yeah. big, and I think it's still growing every year. Mm-hmm. So yeah, definitely come to Force them and meet us and say hi. Yep. Um, and yes, uh, I will be giving a talk about how the ZFS arc works uh, in the main track, and I think there's going to be a talk about how Netflix uses FreeBSD in the main track somewhere as well. Oh wow, that's a great uh, lineup for the BSDs. Mm-hmm. More visibility. Yeah, look forward uh, to that. And you know. The important thing, um, you know, while there's a lot of exciting stuff being presented in the BSD dev room, if you're from BSD, you might also consider going to one of the other rooms and talking to them about BSD. Yeah. Do, does your software run on BSD? Do you support BSDs in some yes. ways? Uh, you know, huh. even just talking to some of the, you know, GNOME and KDE and, and so on people about BSD helps them remember that, oh, yeah, that's a thing and that, you know. Yeah. Or just say thanks if that's already available yes, in the latest exactly. versions for that, you know, integration bits. Yeah, definitely a good thing. And that finishes pretty much our Beastie Bits for this week. And we jump right into our feedback and questions. Remember, even though there are holidays coming up, you can still send us stuff that you find interesting or that we should cover next year. It seems far off, but uh, 2019 is looming. Uh, send everything that you find show-worthy at feedback at bsdnow.tv, and then we'll have something to present next week or the weeks after. So our first feedback uh, comes from Warren about episode 273, OpenZFS on OS Ten. is the question... Mm-hmm. And starts like this. Alan made several statements I'd like to push back on regarding OpenZFS on OS X. Oh, here we go. Uh, first, installing from source is almost never necessary. You want to be using the stable binary packages, and yes, unless you're helping with the actual development of OS X on ZFS. Oh, the other way around. Because it's, it's OpenZFS yeah. on OS X. So O3X uh, okay. is just yeah. a lot less to type. Abbreviate, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, or if you're trying to provide stack traces or such for um, developers. Well, yes, because I was writing code for ZFS, it made sense for me to compile it. But yes, you don't need to do the compiling step. If you just want to use it and don't, 
intend on developing. Yeah. Uh, the second here is things are not exactly the same regarding actual use of ZFS on macOS as compared to using it on FreeBSD, Linux, Illumos, and the others uh, due to the nature of the platform. For instance, you almost always want to create a pool with two non-default options on macOS, like dash O case sensitivity insensitive and dash capital O normalization form D. That's it depends. Properties. If the point of the ZFS file system you're creating is to host files for OS X, then maybe. But if the point of the ZFS file system on OS X is to be able to move it back and forth to FreeBSD, maybe you actually want to keep it case sensitive. Mm, depending uh, yes, on the use case. If, if you're using it just as your regular file system for OS X, then possibly you do want to make it act that way. Mm. But I think OS X works okay if you use a case sensitive file system um, for like user data and stuff. Obviously, Copying. some of the trying to run the OS off of it might cause all kinds of weirdness. Mm. The devil's in the details, uh, but it's definitely working. <clears throat> um, these options change ZFS's behavior to match that of the default HFS Plus behavior, which apps on macOS may expect. The latter is especially important to get right, and since unlike many other ZFS options, you can't change it after the file system is created. Okay, that's, yeah, important to know. But it um, also means third, that if you want to use the file system in other OSs, you may or may not want to actually set that. Yeah, for importing and exporting. Um, Third, uh, the cosmetic dev device name versus dev disk 12 thing is just a minor detail when it comes to OS uh, yeah, 10 because it has a feature called invariant disks which creates a logical tree of slash dev name aliases uh, under a slash while slash run slash disk mimicking the similar uh, slash dev disk feature on Linux. Okay, well, yeah, device names are always different um, than uh, uh the familiar platform that you are probably used to. So it's very useful to use these features with zpool import uh, dash D because it makes your pool immune to silly storage bus renumbering problems as may happen when you rearrange your Thunderbolt cabling to allow a new device to be added to the chain. Right. Um, ZFS doesn't actually have that problem because it will search every device and use its own labels to find out where things are. So uh, unlike some other file systems, ZFS is actually immune to your devices changing names and being remembered. It doesn't bother it at all. Hmm. So he's, um, it's been a while, he writes, uh, since he ran ZFS on FreeBSD, so he's running on memory and web searches, but as far as he can tell, FreeBSD has only partial equivalences. For example, uh, its dev GPT ID feature appears to be equivalent uh, to, the sl- to the slash war slash run disk by ID, nope. and to Linux's uh, no. So disk by ID is generally, usually the disk by its um, serial ID. number or line ID mm. or whatever. So for that, it's dev disk ID uh, is same to disk slash by ID or uh, similar on Linux. Uh, GPT ID is literally the grid of the partition. So you get completely separate device for, you know, ADA0, P1, P2, and P3 by their grids. Um, so the dev GPD ID is for partitions, whereas dev disk ID is for disks. Mm. But it seems like Warren has been using OpenZFS on OS X for a while now, so mm. that's interesting to hear because we don't hear that very often. Um, so what he's missing in the, uh, is a FreeBSD equivalent of the uh, disk, by I, uh, disk by serial feature, which right. identifies... Uh, which I replied to this email a while back, but yes, uh, that is there under dev disk ID in FreeBSD. Mm, okay. Uh, it does have the one slight 
downside of once you open the disk with one type, um, it makes the other aliases for that same disk disappear. So if you open it by its serial number, the uh, you know the GUID versions will disappear. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so that you don't accidentally open the same disk twice. Or add it to the same pool. Yeah. <laughs> Accidents can happen. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's pretty much uh, the feedback we got. Okay. <laughs> that's yeah, good to know for the people who try out or running actually OpenZFS on OS X. Okay. Nice additions. Uh, next up is Kogoman uh, about Tarsnap security and using SDs in RAID. Okay. Sounds interesting. Uh, goes like this. I understand the security of Tarsnap when the user is the only one who has the keys, but one other issue is beginning to emerge. With quantum computing becoming a reality, does Tarsnap use a supposedly quantum hard encryption algorithm? And when did well, Tarsnap... There, no algorithm can be proven to be quantum hard until somebody has a quantum computer that breaks not quantum hard crypto. So it's impossible to say anything is actually quantum hard at this point. Yeah. Although quantum computing has made some advancements in recent years, there's still some time before it becomes mainstream enough outside of the research institutes. Right, but even even with the research ones, they've not they don't have a thing that would break yeah. the Tarsnap keys today. So it's impossible to say that something is quantum hard because it isn't there yet. Yeah, I'm not sure whether Colin is thinking about these things. Um, I'm sure he is. Yeah, I would trust that he will implement something <laughs> to to everyone's uh, yeah security that Tarsnap is based on. Um, should I read the rest about the Tarsnap part or just yep. go with the next part? Okay, so um, when did Tarsnap start using quantum hard encryption encryption algorithm? I don't know. Uh, anyone who has stored a non-quantum hard encrypted volume on the web may have that data escape when large quantum computers become available. Again, there's nothing that's been proven to be quantum hard, so that would be everybody. Yeah. At the end. For me, it's uh, still too far It's ahead something to think about, but I don't think it's something to worry about yet. Mm, yeah. Uh, basically, any solution being sold to you is probably uh, made up. Mm. Okay, um... Also, after listening to a few episodes of the podcast, My Hard Drive Died, the host who does hard drive recovery for a living says you should never use SSDs in a RAID system. Since the failure mechanism of an SSD is dependent on the number of writes, if an SSD dies in a busy RAID system, the other drives will be close behind and are likely to die during the resilvering process. Well, Though, that is, if the reason for the failure is the SSD wearing out, then yes. Mm. Um, but you should probably never use SSDs not in RAID for the same reason <laughs> yeah keep the redundancy but yes you do have to wait if you have to monitor the wear leveling and if you're getting near the end of the life of the disk you do have to realize that changes will get worse yeah be prepared for that and monitor your disks um, though there's a chance you will get uh, through the resilvering you can see the danger there yeah certainly <laughs> Uh, he suggests right. that if you must use SSDs in a busy RAID setup, you should buy an extra drive. Yeah, well. Well, so there's the thing. The resilver itself is not going to write anything to the old SSDs. Right? If you're doing a resilver, if, if you have 
you know, a raid Z of eight SSDs and one of them dies, when you put the new SSD in, it's the one that's going to have all the rights. Yeah, the old going to be stuff, a, suddenly a bunch of rights to one of the old SSDs that's near wearing out. It will old, just have the yeah. same number of rights it would have ever had. Uh, and unlike hard drives, um, reading from an SSD doesn't really wear it out. Not, not too much, yeah. So the um, old drives read and you write to the new drive. Yes, so it's not quite that catastrophic but yes having not all your having all your ssds not be the same age is quite useful mm -hmm. uh yeah and so there's a, a suggested uh way of yeah like putting drive one two and four in the raid and then run for one month remove drive two and install drive three and run it for two months uh now remove drive one and install drive two and run it for one month and now drive two has two months to of rights to it uh, drive three has three months of write to it, and drive four has four months of writes to it. Oh, you're really a disc jockey if you're doing yes, that. Yes, but um, of... yeah, huh. the lifetime of SSDs is usually three to five years. So I would just do like a year or at least six months. Like I wouldn't be swapping the drives all the time because then you're actually just going to write more to them in general and and have spent more time. Uh, yeah. So you don't wanna, you don't want to cause more wearing, but yes, it can make sense to, you know, after a year replace one or some of your SSDs and keep the old slightly worn SSDs as your spares for replacements. Mm -hmm. uh, or you know, if you have hot spares, purposely swap them in after a year or whatever, so that not all your drives are the same age. Don't but be too there are paranoid. plenty of other ways. There are plenty of other ways for an SSD to fail, except for it wearing out. You know, SSDs don't always last until they're worn out. Mm, yeah, just one needs to preserve the data in one mm. way so that it can <laughs> live on. Okay, yeah, let's. Um, it's definitely worth having those considerations, but data is safe. It. I mean, as long as you have enough redundancy, nothing should be too catastrophic unless you uh, accidentally delete data but that's a whole different problem okay um, that's about the SSDs and rates and the last one uh, is Andrew I think we know him Alan mm -hmm. and I at least uh, about the Portland BSD pizza night he writes hello again Alan and Benedict hi Andrew uh, I wanted to say thanks for the mention. Sure, no problem. We had two new folks show up and another one who emailed to say they plan to be there this month. Excellent. Someone is listening to our episode. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> speaking of which, there is um, going to be more gathering for pizza on December 27th, 2018 at Flying Pie Pizzeria in Lake Oswego. Uh, it's not exactly Portland, but it's in Michael Dexter's neck of the woods. Yep, <laughs> that's probably the important part. Uh, sadly, he hears he may be out of town, and so will he as well. Well, family and all that and Christmas. Mm -hmm. uh, that means the folks who do show up, we'll need more people to talk to, so um, yeah, they're not alone. So we tell folks here to show up, um, search for BSD Pizza on the caligator.org website, or meet up at the Flying Pie Pizzeria, hopefully not pie in the face style, uh, Flying Pie Pizzeria, uh, Monroe Parkway 3, STE5, people would know. Um, there's uh, all uh, in the show notes, if you want to get the address, and yeah, Definitely show up if you have enough of uh, Christmas and want to talk to BSD folks about 
BSD or other things about uh, how Christmas went over pizza. Yep. So, and uh, remember, we told you that this is our last live episode for this year. For this year, um, next week we'll have a little bit shorter episode. Uh, so, we want to take the occasion here to thanks uh, to give thanks to all our viewers and listeners for this year, uh, to all the people we interviewed who. Um, volunteered to be interviewed who didn't run away too fast uh, all the people who send us questions and show content for this year to actually have content for our episodes every week mm-hmm. um, have happy holidays and see you in 2019 happy new year 